what students really like is for you to give them a problem set uh, homework assignment that looks pretty much like the exam. They memorize how to solve those problems and now they think they're a genius and they go to the exam, they see the same kinds of problems. You change a number here or there, you change the direction of a curve shift, something, a little change. And they think, oh, I'm, I, I know this material really well. And then they go to the evaluations. Oh, the professor was great. He taught us the material so well. I know everything. But really, they just memorize how to solve a certain set of problems. They don't necessarily understand the deeper meaning behind them. Just having the UCLA degree itself, the name that on my resume I can write, I graduated from UCLA. These things have a lot of value that are difficult to put into any other form. That we have the system that we've built up. Employers are looking for certain things. Students know that those employers want those certain things, and they're going to do their best to try to get them. So even if the best way to learn was to transition out of these traditional colleges, there's a lot of people that would have to change their expectations of what they want from students in order for that to actually happen. At Tybal Education, we are committed to having your people be connected with a higher purpose. As we look to 2021 and the hope for greater ease and less uncertainty, we bring you a podcast on learning. How do you produce active listening in a colleague, student, or peer? Active listening is a central tenet to the capacity to learn and acquire new skills. In this podcast, we explore learning with UCLA professor Dr. Christopher Sura. Chris is committed to his students' success, and he teaches us how to engage others to learn by applying a few simple principles, showing care, guiding versus doing, and creatively using technology. As administrators, deans, CFOs, or faculty, this is an invaluable conversation to listen to and share with others. We look forward to hearing how this resonates with you. And now, Howard Teibel and Dr. Christopher Surrow. Thank you, Pete. Chris, it's great to see you. Great to see you, too. We're both now living in different parts of the country, and we, we, we both have our roots back in Massachusetts, but it's, it's great. We're out here in Colorado, and you're where again? In lovely... Pasadena right now, but right outside of Los Angeles. Pasadena. Mm-hmm. For now, let's, let's, let's dig into you know, a conversation. I'm really excited about talking to you just about the nature of being a professor in these times. And when I say these times, I'm speaking larger than the pandemic. These times in terms of what it means to teach, what it means to learn, you know, what what kinds of preparation for being in the world do we think about, especially do you think about as, you know, as a professor, as these students are being funneled through our academic institutions. For me, the learning lives in what we're doing with adults that are already in the workforce and teaching them how to be effective leaders and managers. When we talked last, you had made the statement, students don't know when they've learned something. Right. <laughs> that was a really interesting thing. I want you to, I want you to expound on that. And, and you had shared a study that I thought was fascinating about the nature of retention. Could you tell that story? Yeah, so so there was a study came out last year, I think, and basically they did a trial where they said uh, we're going to have two classes that are both they're teaching physics and they're going to teach the same topic, 
But in one class, we're going to do it as a traditional lecture style. The teacher is going to be up there. They're going to just write on the board, explain what, what the topic is. And the students won't really have much interaction. They can ask questions or whatever, but it won't be student focused. And then the other one is going to take this active learning approach where the students are going to be solving problems. They're going to be working together. And the teacher takes on kind of a more uh, just an advisory role where they're helping the students with the problems, but they're not the, they're not the star of the show. They're not up there uh, giving a lecture the whole time and just talking at the students. And what they were trying to test was a couple things. Like first, do students enjoy that experience? But also, do they learn something from it? And what they found is across a wide variety of measures, students didn't like it. So they asked things like, would you want a class to be taught like this in the future? Do you feel that the instructor was engaging to you? And across all those measures, the traditional lecture did better. The only measure where the active learning lecture did better was they gave a test to both groups of students at the end and the active learning students did better. So in this objective measure of did you actually learn something from the class, the active learning students did better, even though they thought they didn't like the class, they didn't learn as much from the class, the instructor wasn't as engaging. So it's really interesting, the difference in the perception that the students had versus the objective results, they actually did better on this physics test in the end. It's a surprising result, because I would think people would recognize that through conversation, that something's happening more. But what's your conclusion about why students look at the lecture as, I probably retain more, when in fact, through engagement and active learning, they actually did retain more. What, what, what's your observation of that? It all comes down to like the fact that learning is hard. So when you're actually learning something, you're struggling. You're not just taking it in. And when you're just looking at a, at a professor that knows everything and they're explaining it in this really eloquent way because they've done it a million times before and you're just writing down and you're like, yeah, this makes so much sense. This makes so much sense. 30 minutes after the lecture, you think back, like, what did he actually say? I have no idea. Whereas if you're sitting in this active learning lecture, you're struggling. You don't know how to solve this problem. You're kind of banging your head against the wall. It doesn't feel good. But then later, you remember those experiences precisely for that same reason. Because it didn't feel good at the time, you remember, oh, I had a lot of trouble with this problem. And then I figured out that there was this nice way to solve it. And now I remember that. And so at the time, it doesn't feel good. And you think you're not learning because you're, again, you're just kind of stuck. But those experiences of being stuck actually help you learn more than just copying down what the professor said, even though it feels nice at the time. You know, it seems to me also that it's no mistake that you have an awareness of that study because that's the kind of sensibility you bring, which is how do I get them to be engaged? And from everything I've read about you and from a previous conversation, you're looking for as many avenues as possible to produce connections, right? In the learning experience. Yes. And there's how you show up by showing care, but there's also how you're using technology. Talk about the integration of technology. And I'm curious also for your peer professors, whether they're peer within your institution, whether they're tenure track professors in other places, what are you noticing are some of the disparities still in thinking about how to use technology to produce engagement? It's an important issue for a couple of reasons. So first, 
how I've been using it. There's so there's a tons tons of new technologies out there. Things like you can have students answer questions on their phones. You can have them kind of engage with each other through like discussion board type situations. They can ask questions to each other on like almost like Slack type interfaces now. And there's a bunch of these programs out there that are really nice. I try to use them to the extent that they're helpful. So you, you run into some problems in going along this way that you just want to try out all these new things and then the students get yeah. confused because there's a million different things out there. So right. it's important to use them in a way that is actually going to be helpful for the students and not just, oh, there's this new technology out there. In terms of it being adopted more widely by professors and by other teachers, I think the challenge is there's a high fixed cost to setting up a class. So you've taught the same class. A lot of these professors have taught the same class for 20 years. They put in a lot of the work of how to teach that class at the beginning. These new technologies come out along the way. You have to really rethink how you're designing this class. You can't do the traditional lecture style that they were doing 20 years ago if you want to implement a lot of these new technologies. Now, some are supplemental. And, and you were doing this before COVID. I mean, this was yeah. a way you were engaging. And now this has been exacerbated since you have to teach remotely. Before COVID, I think it was almost even more of an issue because I was teaching large classes and getting engagement when you're just looking at an audience of 300 people is very difficult. So some of those like app-based learning uh, where they can answer questions and I can see like, are they actually listening to my lecture in real time? Those are actually some in some ways more helpful than, than now because now I can kind of do them interactively anyway because it's all online. They, they're doing online quizzes and so on. So it's in some ways easier now <laughs> to implement those kinds of technologies than it was in a traditional lecture. But yeah, I think the inertia of just having professors that have taught it the same way for 20 years and to tell them you should change how you're doing it it's just a high burden for them to do so i think it's understandable that these wouldn't be like the, the way that they get adopted is by new people coming in and trying new things and then like the the old guard starts to retire and so it'll be a slow change but i think one that necessarily has to happen i've heard this from other professors too that the fact that covid has forced us maybe into uh, more of a, not just a way of engaging, but we don't have those large lecture halls, that we now have the capacity to connect more. What has been the upside? I'm going to transition to this right now. Since March, since you're teaching in that period uh, to today, whether it's been hybrid, or common, you know, however you've been having to do it, what has been some of the benefits you've seen that you've been able to produce with students and what have been some of the downsides or, or, you know, real downside of this or challenges? The hard part is that there's a lot of heterogeneity across students so that some students like, this is great. Like, I feel like when I was a student, I would have loved taking classes remotely because you can kind of go at your own pace. And if you want to just watch a lecture at two times speed really quickly to see what parts you don't understand and then go back and rewatch them, you can do that. So I think, like from that sense and like at least the way I run my classes, I try to give them incentives to keep up with it. But I think the hard part is really motivating yourself when it's like, I don't really have a lecture that I have to go to now. So when you're in that traditional learning method, it's like, okay, I have to wake up. I have to go to my class at 10 a.m. and I have to go to the next one at 1 p.m. 
Now you don't have that. You have a video. And I think most people, the way I do it is you can watch the video over a set amount of time. I put some limit on it just to give them some incentive, but there's not really that schedule anymore. And for a lot of students, I think it's difficult for them to motivate themselves to keep up with it. But in terms of the advantages, I think if, if you think about kind of the traditional lecture, you kind of have to do it all at once. Like you have this like one hour block where you're teaching your class. You can do like the lecture part, the example part, and like the students have to take it in all together. Whereas I can kind of now break it up. So I have, here's the content, the theory that you need to know. And that's one video. And then you can kind of digest that, think about it. And then, okay, now here's uh, some example problems. You can work on those on your own. And then I'll have another video where we go over those example problems together. So it kind of allows the students to spread that over a, a bigger period of time, which I think does help um, in a lot of ways. So you're not constrained to that one hour block anymore. The complaint by students in prior to the summer, but they did forgive professors because they had very little window to do any thinking about redesigning their programs but or their, their courses, is that we really didn't do online training. It was remote, it was remote, remote teaching. Yeah. It wasn't true online learning yeah. Yeah. Uh, because you would likely design this stuff differently. So now we get to the summer, we're in the fall. Who knows really at this point, at this time in the calendar, how much longer we're going to have to be operating this way. Yeah. What kind of redesign have you had to deal with? Like, have you, have you done wholesale redesigns of your classes? Uh, how have you gone about making this not just a robot experience, but a, you know, an engaging online experience? I'm curious, because I think this is something that some are doing very well and some are not, or they're doing very poorly. Definitely. So I would say when we were kind of thrown into this in the spring, I basically didn't change anything right away. I was just like, okay, instead of standing in front of the students and giving a lecture for an hour, I'm going to record a video of me giving the lecture for an hour and post the video and it'll be basically the same. Um, which, yeah, I totally agree. Is like, it's not the way, like if you're given this other format, then you should adapt to take advantage of that format. So what I'm doing now with my classes is, again, I have like this basically pre-recorded part which is you can think of as just the content of the class. Like if you want to go back and watch this, you can do it. And then I have a separate session later in the week after we've done the, the core content of the class where it's live and I have the students come in and I have five questions and I put up the first one and then I use these kind of online tools so I can put up a poll and they can work on the question. And when they're done, they can put in their answer and I can see like, okay, did a lot of them get it right? Did, did some people struggle? Did, what answers did they get wrong? And then we'll go over it together and they can ask questions interactively live as we go over it together. So it's kind of like, again, that separation of, okay, here's just the content and students have to put in the effort to watch the videos and try to learn the content on their own. And then we have this kind of extra like practice piece, which I never really had because you only have those two lectures per week in the normal time. But now I have this ability to have these additional sessions later in the week after they've already interpreted the material and, and tried to learn it themselves to practice that. And so I think having that, that spread really helps. You know, and it's interesting thinking this. I was going to ask you for finding that your 
the, the amount of time you're taking both from a design and also the delivery of the classes if it's, ex, if it's expanded. And I think there might be, so you're nodding your head yes, but there's also the piece where this is new and different and it's almost like the first time you do something new, it's going to feel longer, right? It's going to feel more, more uh, and it might be genuinely, I don't know if you're putting in twice the amount of time, but even if it was the same amount of time, the fact that it's different right would produce the reaction of, you know, a sense of, uh, I don't know. I think time is affected by our comfort level yeah. with something. And the easier it is, the time flies a lot faster. But it's almost like we're learning from scratch yeah. in a certain way. You're learning as professors how to modify something that has become very part of the culture and very normal into another way of working. So are you working a lot more hours as a result of having to redesign and teach differently? Yeah, I think so. Um, so I haven't like sat down and so you really, it's interesting. You don't even know <laughs> you're just doing it. Right. So I haven't really sat down and like calculated the time that I took before and the time that I took now, but it certainly feels like more again, you have your hour block, you go in and you teach, if you mess something up, it's like, well, <laughs> it's over. Like it was live. There was nothing I could do about it. Now it's like you're recording a video. You said something you didn't really want to say. You can go back and you can edit it and you can take out that part and put in a different replacement. And so you're spending additional time after you do the lecture to say, okay, how can I make this a little bit better? So there's that. And then there's also just the problem of communication where in a traditional time, you'd have students be able to come up after lecture and ask you a quick question. Now all of that has to happen right. over email or over some Zoom or something. It just takes a lot more time logistically to make sure, first of all, students are actually like reading the emails that you send out. So you'll always get questions back about something I emailed two days ago. I'm getting questions about it again. And so logistically with emailing and all of this communication problem, I think that adds at least double the normal amount of time I would spend on those kinds of issues. So the lectures take longer, the communication stuff takes longer. I would say, again, I haven't measured, but I would say probably 1.5 times to two times as long as I would normally spend. Yes. And that's partly the reason I would imagine for some that they're either choosing to basically take their materials and put it online because to really do this redesign, it's not a trivial thing. And, you know, for some, I would imagine professors or even people working in academic areas, I didn't sign up for this, right? This was yeah. thrust upon me. And there's a bit of like hoping at some point it's going to go back to normal. What's the status right now at UCLA? Is it all online? Yeah. Um, with very few exceptions. Um, I think they have some classes yeah. that, just by their nature need to be in person, but the vast majority right. right now are online. And I think it's going to stay that way through the spring, just because it doesn't make sense to bring back students for one quarter uh, to come back. You have yeah. people all over the country. You're not going to bring them in for one quarter. Um, and then I think the plan for now, we'll see how things progress is that there'll be summer classes in person as kind of a test, test drive. And then hopefully next fall we'll be back in person for real. But yeah, I mean, I think it's also interesting because I, I don't know if it will cause changes in the long run where now online classes in general become more accepted. And even if it's 
healthy and we're able to have in-person classes if there will be some transition towards more online classes. I don't know. It seems to me there's two camps that are emerging. There's people that really like this. Yeah. Both from a student as well as a teacher standpoint and even in my work. But there's also the Zoom fatigue, you know, and I hit that window myself where it's like, okay, and I just, I just led a program uh, for, for a conference, and otherwise it was going to be in Montreal. This was scheduled, and the whole thing got canceled, and we still had the conference. But I'll tell you, it's not the same uh, sitting on a Zoom call with people watching, and, I, and I'm just watching people, and you can, sit, you can feel their fatigue uh, and I think their desire to come back face-to-face. Yeah, I, I attended – a virtual teaching conference last week. And it's basically just, I mean, I didn't even know who else was watching this video. You just see the video of the person giving their presentation. There's some questions popping up in the Q&A thing, but they're mostly anonymous. I I don't know who's sending them. Versus an in-person conference, you get to go and you network and you meet new people. And it's just a totally different experience. Right, you sit next to somebody... The, the conversation's over, you're talking to a peer, right. you go have a cup of coffee with them or a drink. Yeah, the, the nature of isolation. You know, Zoom, I mean, the, the, when we have the gallery on Zoom, at least I can see other human yeah. beings and we can connect. But when it's these formats where you can only see the presenter and you see names yeah. and you see chat, it is relatively limiting. At the same time, I think we have to continue to figure out how to get better with this. I was curious about something because you were talking about design and you know there's there's different comfort yeah. level with technology right part of it is yeah. you grew up with it right you know versus somebody in their 60s did not grow up with this they learned it as part of being an adult right so there's a whole generation of faculty that were born with the sort of the capacity to navigate technology how is within a department, whether you can speak about yours or other departments, how are faculty collaborating around design? Because it seems to me, you know, you have classes you have to teach. You're going to do some form of design that's relevant for your classes. Is everybody on their own for the most part? Or do the faculty, for example, in the economics area, do they come together and go, all right, yeah, what are you doing that I could be doing. Is, is that actively happening or is it sort of, it really depends on the individual? It's happening to some extent. And I would say the issue of why it's not happening more isn't so much that the, I mean, first the department does have limited resources and like everybody's trying to transition into this new reality, which includes the administration and all of this. So I, I don't know. I feel like sometimes the students end up kind of taking the brunt of the cost of this because redesigning those classes kind of takes second priority to making sure all of these administrative things work out and that professors are still happy to some extent. Um, but so, I mean, there's that, but I think the bigger yep. uh, like hurdle to, to cross is that even if you told a professor, like, here's the best way to teach this class, there's some research that shows you can do it this way, this way. They just, again, they have this 20 years built up of they've been teaching the class this way. To get them to try to change that isn't so easy. Um, so I think that's the bigger hurdle. Um, and it's 
sometimes not even a, a question of like, do they want to change it or not? It's, I mean, their job is mostly based on the research that they do and somewhat based on the teaching that they do. I mean, for me, I have time to put into teaching mostly because um, my job is mainly teaching focused. But, but for them, they're not going to take time away from their research to redesign these whole classes. It doesn't make sense. And that's a really interesting challenge and opportunity for someone like you. I mean, I think that you bring something knowing that your commitment is to the classroom. You and I talked in advance is that you're not on right. a tenure track plan. Yes. And that's intentional. It's that that would take you into a different path. And I really, I commend you. And I, and I, and I think that more of that willingness to not see that going a non-tenure track yeah. is not lesser than, right? This is, this, is, this is demonstrating a commitment to the classroom. I think universities are starting to recognize that being a good researcher does not necessarily make you a good teacher. And in some cases, I think there's even a negative correlation that the best researchers are not so good at teaching. Um, and I think there is starting to be a little bit of a, more of a disconnect where they're saying, okay, we'll give tenure track professors a little bit less of a teaching load and we'll hire more people as full-time teaching faculty. Because normally that position had just been, they would hire part-time professors to kind of fill in the gaps. And I think there, are, there is starting to be more of a, we'll hire full-time people to be just teachers, just to focus on students teaching classes not have that research as the main thing that they're trying to do to get promoted. In my recent talk, I mentioned that the pandemic is not people's problem in education. The pandemic is an accelerant and a revealer of the dysfunction that happens yeah. in our institutions in a certain way. It, it's making more awareness. And, you know, then there's a whole camp that's thinking about all right, how do we get back to normal? I talked to some people that are in the quote-unquote elite institutions and they want to get back to the old way. How do we think about this as an opportunity to transform how we, how, how we teach, how we engage, how we budget? All of that is on the table and it will depend on leaders' capacity and willingness to take that on. When you think about being on the other side where you get to choose how you're going to design your class, whether you get to choose some face-to-face, -face, some online, all online, all face-to-face. -face. What's emerging for you as this is what I'd like to see happen. This is, you know, if, if I could fully choose how I was going to design my programs in terms of engagement, how would you incorporate what you've learned over the last nine months as an intentional process moving forward? I know that's a big question that's going to keep changing, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts about that right now. It's a difficult question to answer for a number of reasons. First, I mean, I think what's coming is difficult to imagine in general. Like, we're going to have continuously new technologies, so continuing to take advantage of those. But I think maybe a better way to approach it is you want to think about, okay, first, what is the goal? And I think sometimes the students have different goals than the universities and the universities have different goals than the professors. So we want to think of it from like each person's perspective. What is the goal of going to school? And I think one problem is that from my point of view, my goal is to make the students learn what I'm trying to teach them. And from that side, I think having these kind of technologies is going to help even as we go back to in-person. And I'm going to still use kind of 
videos, I think, to augment what I'm saying in live lectures and use these kind of tools, quizzes, online quizzes, these kinds of things. So I'll still continue to use those and hopefully expand on them. And hopefully things that I learn now, things that work and don't work, I can definitely apply. What I'm trying to get at is there could be a transition towards more online school in general. And I think this could lead to students realizing I can learn well from online. And what that would open up in theory, and I'm going to say this now, and then I'm going to say why I don't think this is, that's what, what's going to happen. In theory, it could be you find the best online teacher, and there's no reason that that guy has to teach only 300 students. He could teach 10,000 students. And so you have these kind of already popping up before the pandemic where like Coursera and these, uh, I don't know, Udemy, these other forms of education that are not the traditional college. They're people going to look, watch online videos and engage with these kinds of things. And in theory, the pandemic could accelerate that in that more, more and more students are going to be open to these non-traditional forms of education. Now, the other side of it would say, well, from the student's point of view, their main goal is not necessarily to learn the material as much as it pains me to say that as a professor, but it's, it's rational for them. I mean, I'm, I'm teaching now intermediate microeconomics. We're deriving demand curves using calculus. I would say 1% of the students in the class are going to be doing something with what I'm teaching them right now later in their life, in their careers. And so for a student that sees college as just a way to jump into a career, now we're not thinking about what's the best way for them to learn. We're thinking about what's the best way for them to get into the career that they want to. And the traditional college offers a lot of things that these online forms of college can't necessarily provide. So things like the ability to network, just having the UCLA degree itself, the name that on my resume I can write, I graduated from UCLA. These things have a lot of value that are difficult to put into any other form. That We have the system that we've built up. Employers are looking for certain things. Students know that those employers want those certain things and they're going to do their best to try to get them. So even if the best way to learn was to transition out of these traditional colleges, there's a lot of people that would have to change their expectations of what they want from students in order for that to actually happen. So well, I think like if, if I was like a planner and I could redesign everything about the way society worked, then I think we would see a huge transition away from traditional college type organization. Given the constraints that we actually have as human beings and that nobody can actually make those big changes unilaterally, I would expect much less change than maybe should happen. That's a great way of looking at it from multiple sides. And I especially like that when you framed it from the perspective of the student, uh, from the faculty member, and from, for example, the administrators or what the yeah. different stakeholders in this, you said they all have a different expectation. They have a, yeah. they, they have a different goal. And one interpretation when you have that from different groups is let's come up with a shared goal. That's not what you're saying, which is interesting. You're actually saying we need to really appreciate that we do have these different aspirations and goals versus trying to pigeonhole to come up with one that will work for everybody. Students are going through this not necessarily to learn, but it, it is a rite of passage yeah. for many. But also it's 
it's to seek better, you know, potential employment. And then because of the cost these days, there, there is a recognition of a need yep. for a return on investment. But a faculty member also has a different expectation. And, and maybe what we need to do is not try and figure out how to one, but as you're saying, to really appreciate the different perspectives. In a certain way, you could talk yourself out of, and you sort of said that, right? You talk, you can talk yourself out of that the yeah. change is even possible to produce something. But I like the other thing that you said, which is interesting, is there's pieces right now that we can't even anticipate. So when the pandemic begins to die down and we have more choice about what we're going to do, there are yeah. going to be newer technologies right. that we don't even have now that we can start thinking about. You know, as I hear you talk, I think the other aspect of this that's interesting is that we're all beginners at learning how to work in this kind of way. And when you're a beginner, you're in this position where so much is being thrown at you. It's only when you can look back and go, all right, that's, you know what, I'm more prepared. And maybe we had to go through this to be able to recognize that we can learn in this way, that we can learn from an online experience versus everything had to be face-to-face. -face. I think you're right about that. Since you were a student, a graduate student, and you're working with undergrads and, and grads, what do you notice is the difference today? What inspires you about students today? Or do you see, for the most part, it's the same experience you had when you were a student, student yourself? Are you seeing any shifts in student mindset, emerging generation? Some. Um, and I don't know. It's difficult to say because I think as a student, you see a very limited perspective because you, you kind of know your friends and you know the professors that you had and you can see a, a couple classes. And then as you come in as a professor, you see I see hundreds of students per quarter, thousands of students per year. Um, and so I see the kind yeah. of the whole district. Whereas when I was a student, I see only my friends, basically. Um, and there's some selection into who I would hang out with and who I would take classes with. But I think in general, it has become much more competitive in terms of what is expected of students, uh, like going for internships, uh, like hyper focus on grades. Everybody needs to like be at that A level. And I, I don't know if it was just a different school, different time, but it seems like that competitiveness has increased so much that I don't know. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. Like student quality has gone up, but also just like the what students think is expected of them, and that's increased anxiety. It's increased stress, um, right. and so that I think is kind of a concerning change that I've seen. Um, you asked about inspiring changes. I don't know. I don't know if I've seen too much of inspiring changes, but yeah. So it's interesting that this is a hard time to talk about uh, inspiration, right? So how do you show up inspiration when you have so much uncertainty in front of you, and in many ways you're you're locked down to a very small circle. But this 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 well being, you know, people's sense of well being and their sense of of stress, right? Their anxiety. It makes sense that it's, it's, it's exacerbated by this push towards productivity and grades and internships and how are we going to have this figured out? And, and, and maybe it also is a function too of what disciplines you're in, yeah. right? 
when you when you go into an engineering discipline, uh, you have a real expectation that you're going to come out and get the top engineering job. That's what your hope is, or a certain pay. So I think the hard science disciplines might bring more of that anxiety where the softer ones where you're going to learn for learning's sake, maybe it's a little less. I've, I've got an, a question here I've been, I've been dying to ask you. Why do your students love you so much? <laughs> I, I, I have found buried deep in the interweb. It's a joke, by the way. I'm not really that old. Actually, yeah. Student testimonials. Uh-huh. Student testimonials here. You know, there's some nice ones. I love the class structure. Chris has a unique way of doing things. Makes the class interesting. Then we get into things like, I've never come across a professor that cares as much as Chris does. That had to feel good. (laughs) This other comment here, he brings the latest information relevant to the business world. Uh, He brings technology. Mr. Sorrow brings to class every day an infectious, positive personality. But I've got one last one to read, and then you're going to have to answer to these, okay? Like, because he, the, why am I reading these? <laughs> I've talked to other chairs, and, and they said, listen, one of our problems is, is our, our, our professors are evaluated by students, you know, doing these kinds of evals. But the risk there is that we are teaching to students liking the professor, which I am confident you don't do, but you're still producing this. This is the last one I have to read here. The class is extremely tough, but Chris gives us everything we need. The rest is up to us. Here's his weakness, though. The class is too good and creates the wrong incentive. I almost want to fail just so I can repeat it. (laughs) Seriously? (laughs) All right. So talk to us here because there is an interesting tension between being likable, being the kind of professor that students make those kind of comments, and then walking away with actually having learned something that you're trying to teach them. So so how are you producing this balance? It's it's hard. So I'm going to devalue those evaluations a little bit. So I think it's true. Like you can make students like you in a way that's not necessarily conducive to their learning. So there was a, another study that I saw recently where if the professor brought cookies to class on the last day, then their evaluations would be significantly higher than a control group where they didn't bring cookies to class. Do you bring cookies? No, I don't. <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> but it, it's more the idea of just like being friendly caring about students, that can get you good evaluations, whether they're actually learning or not. So you want to be a little bit careful treating evaluations too highly. And I think sometimes universities in general kind of fall into that trap of like, it's very difficult to rate how well a professor is doing. And the student evaluations give at least one numerical measure of of the way a professor is doing. But it also it kind of opens up the temptation. What students really like is for you to give them a problem set, uh, homework assignment that looks pretty much like the exam. They memorize how to solve those problems. And now they think they're a genius. And they go to the exam, they see the same kinds of problems. You change a number here or there, you change the direction of a 
curve shift something, a little change, and they think, oh, I'm, I, I know this material really well. And then they go to their evaluations. Oh, the professor was great. He taught us the material so well. I know everything. But really, they just memorized how to solve a certain set of problems. They don't necessarily understand the deeper meaning behind them. So I've actually tried to some extent to accept a little bit of a hit to my evaluations and make the students struggle a little bit with the class. And again, based on these kind of active learning studies, they're going to think I'm doing a worse job. <laughs> they're going to give me slightly lower evaluations. Now there's a balance, of course. So I think, again, just by being organized, caring, things that everybody can do, the students are going to respect that, whether they feel that you actually taught them a lot or not. Um, so my evaluations are still uh, pretty good today. But I've accepted that like, I'm not going to please all of these students. Some of them are not going to enjoy what they need to actually do to learn the material. And so I don't want to just give them the exam, basically, before the exam so that they learn it and they think that they know everything and that they're going to give me great evaluations because they're not actually going to learn. So I think kind of from a university standpoint, it makes sense a little bit to you want evaluations. You don't want students to come in and say, I hate this professor. I Like he didn't show up to class half the time and like he was unorganized and all these things. So there is value to the student evaluations. But in terms of did the students actually learn? I think they are not great at judging that, especially right after the class when they, they're fresh off remembering all of this stuff and they think they know it. You really would have to ask them like two years later, do, right. do you remember what you learned in this class? And that's really hard to do to come back and say like, how much did they learn from this class that they'll actually be able to keep uh, with them in the future? But yeah, so like I try now to not have a, like a laser focus on just maximizing my evaluation scores, but also trying to keep in mind that what the students want is not necessarily what's best for them. And I remember talking to you about this, saying that, you know, if, if the aspiration is to get above a 90 as an overall numeric score, I'm going to be okay with an 85 or I'm going to be okay with an 80 or whatever yeah. the numbers were. And I think that is really that's a great way to approach this because I, you know, I remember in my early days, not teaching students, but teaching adults. And there was the sheets afterwards where people would rate on, you know, up to one to 10 and a bunch of things. And I'd look at the positive scores and I wanted to be as close to 10 as possible. But really what you're saying is your first commitment is to the learning. You produce that just from reading many of these that I didn't read uh, aloud here is that you show care. You also make yourself available, right? That's the other thing that a lot of students commented about. And I think in the end, they see you as somebody who is really helping them and you're doing everything you can to help them get through it. And even if they don't do well, they know that you made that effort. And I, and I commend you for like how you're finding that balance so that the, with the focus on, can I say that I did everything I could to help them walk out of here? Right. It's great, Chris. Yeah. I try. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. I mean, I, that's even better. Like you try. You, there's no way to guarantee this. You know, it's something yeah. that you're going to keep having to get better at, right? Yeah. Because it's always a moving needle. Well, one thing I didn't mention that I, that I should from that active learning study is that they found that some of this effect where you have this mismatch between what students think 
they learned and what they actually learned, some of it goes away if before the class, you tell them about this mismatch. And you tell them, you might feel during this class that you're not learning. But that process, that struggle is what's actually helping you learn. If you tell them that before, then they got less of a of a mismatch between what students felt they learned and what they actually learned. Do you mention this? I have in some classes where I try to make this kind of the focus of like students going through the problems, because I think it's true. Like sometimes they feel like, oh, he just doesn't want to do the work. Like he doesn't right. want to be up there lecturing. He wants us to do the work. But I, if I stress to them, like you doing the work is how you learn. It's going to be hard. You're going to struggle with this. I think it does help to some extent in managing their expectations and knowing like, okay, he's not just doing this because he's lazy and doesn't want to teach us. He's doing it because he thinks it's actually going to help. That's brilliant. And, and uh, I love that you do it on the front end. What happens is when they hit that wall, they say to themselves, you know, what Chris told us this, right? He mentioned <laughs> that that disconnect's going to happen. And maybe I can trust that what Chris is saying, this is a better way to learn. It's almost like you're reorienting their thinking when they have those reactions. And it also stops them from hitting that wall and saying, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to ask the professor and then he's going to explain it to me. And if I tell them, no, you're supposed to hit the wall and you're supposed to struggle for an hour or something trying to figure this out. Again, they're ready for it when it hits. So I think, yeah, that communication up front in general for anything, just telling them what, what your goals are, what you're trying to do, and whether you succeed or not, I mean, then, then that will show up in the evaluations, but at least it sets the criteria of like, okay, here's why he gave us this assignment. So another example in another class, I give them a data report assignment. So they have to go collect some data and they put it into a report. And it's meant to kind of emulate what they would see in the, in the business world where like a client has asked them to do a report on some statistics and they have to give it to a client. And the first time I did it, I wanted it to be really open-ended. So I didn't give them a lot of direction. I, I said, you have to find some variables related to these topics and you come up, you decide like what, how you're going to organize it, what you want to do. And they didn't like that at all because they like being told exactly how, what, what to do to get an A basically. The next time I did it, I didn't give them more direction but I told them that I'm purposefully not giving you a lot of direction on this assignment. I want it to be open-ended because it's going to emulate what you'll see in the business world where a lot of times you're not given, your boss isn't going to tell you, I want A, B, C, D. They're just going to tell you, I want to know this, figure out the best way to tell me this and, and turn that in. And I told them that that's the goal of this assignment is for you to work on it. And by communicating that to them up front, even though I didn't change the assignment at all, it was still the same assignment. They liked it better after I had explained that to them in the second class. So just the, even though the, the core of it didn't change at all, just communicating to them beforehand made a big difference in their perce perceptions of it. You're focusing not in that case at all in economics. You're focusing on helping them learn how to learn. Yeah, exactly. Fundamentally, what you're putting in front of them, which translates every other place they go, including post-university. Yes. Excellent. Is there anything else that you want to share that maybe was part of a pre-conversation we had? Uh, 
any final final words you want to share with either students who are out there listening, other faculty, or or even administrators? Uh, we have a lot of administrators at all levels uh, that you think would be a, a, a useful parting comment. It makes a big difference no matter who you're talking to. So whether you're a professor trying to teach students, whether you're an administrator trying to help professors, just having the attitude of this is a work in progress. Like I'm trying to figure things out the same way that you students are trying to figure things out. And being open to the idea that like this is something that I'm going to adapt over time. And I, I give out surveys to my students throughout the quarter. Is this thing new thing that I'm trying? Is it working? And if it's not working, think about changing it. And even if you don't change it, just being open and saying like, I'm thinking about this and I'm willing to try to change it if it's something that's that's going to work out with the structure of the class. Just having that openness. So whether you're a professor to students, whether you're administrator to professors, not having a hard line of like, this is my class. I'm going to run my class the way I'm going to run it. This is my university. I'm going to run it the way I'm going to run it. Even giving like an appearance of being open and that you're listening and that you're willing to work on things, improve things in the future. I think that makes just a huge difference in that if you're willing to work with the students, they're willing to work with you. I tell my students at the beginning of my classes, if you don't try to take advantage of me, then I will be reasonable. It's when you start to kind of <laughs> try to take advantage, then I'll have to be a hard line. But as long as we're both open with each other and we're honest, then we can work together to make this class um, as good as it can be. And I think that applies in all situations. Like if you're just the hard line, we're doing it my way. I'm not going to listen to any ideas. You're not going to be as successful as if you're open to, to change. You know, this is a message, Chris, that, that translates across the board, like you said. And fundamentally, what you're talking about is the capacity and, the, and to really practice being adaptable. Yes. And that's what my sense is that you do. Thank you very much for being on this uh, show and doing this with me. This was a real pleasure. I learned a bunch of things <laughs> that I can take back. Uh, and also, you know, how to, how to make sure I can increase my scores. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks a lot. And let's, uh, let's continue this conversation. Yeah. Thanks for having me.